Good evening. Take your Bible and open to the New Testament, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we are in verse 7. I'll read down through verse 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have come to know about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. And apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Tonight we have the privilege of coming again to Romans chapter 7 here in our study, and we're looking at the function of the law and the life of a believer in light of the biblical teaching of justification by faith alone and Christ alone. And the question is, does the teaching of justification by faith only render the law of no value or render the law useless or even worse, as Paul says in verse 1, what shall, or verse 7, what shall we say then is the law sin? And uh, Paul's answer, of course, is may it never be. The very suggestion is an unthinkable suggestion. Some opponents, as I've told you, of Paul's teaching of justification by faith alone have argued that such teaching will cause sin to increase. Some opponents of Paul's teaching by justification by faith have argued that if the law doesn't save, if there are no rules, then you do whatever you want. You live your life any way you want and uh, just uh, be free to do anything. Again, both ideas are completely wrong, as we've seen in our studies together. So it's obvious that there's confusion over the issue of the law. There was, in Paul's time, confusion over the issue of the law, and likewise in our time. So I want us to try to understand biblically a little more clear when we're looking at the law as it relates to uh, Christians what we're talking about. And I want us to see it, especially here in the context of the book of Romans, and especially uh, in light of the context here in Romans, there are many Jewish believers in Rome, at the church at Rome, who've come from a background where they have been, where they've elevated the law to a place where God never intended it to be, that, mean, that being a means of salvation. Unfortunately, the Jews had developed a theology um, that said that men could make themselves right before God by exercising the law or carrying the law, keeping the law. Uh, and, and because the law was so sacred. So again, there's confusion over this issue of the law. I, I started off last time, our time together here in Romans, with this statement. I said, Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, which I said is the greatest good news that anybody could ever hear, which is a tremendously truthful truth. Therefore, no man can be saved apart from seeing themselves as sinners, right, in need of Christ, in need of the Savior. And that's a great deal of the problem in the world. There's not many people who understand their need for Christ. They don't see themselves not only as utterly lost, they don't see themselves as condemned before God, they don't see themselves as sinners. And no one can understand the greatness of the good news of the gospel until they understand the terrible judgment they are under because of their sin. It has been said that salvation by grace means little to those who know nothing of damnation under the law. And the bad news is that all men and women are under the law of God, under obligation to obey the law. All men are violators of the law, which means that all men are under the sentence of eternal punishment, and all men on their way to eternal hell. And that's a very profound statement. All men are under the law. All men are under obligation to obey the law. All men are in violation of God's law. And all men are under condemnation because of that violation. And again, most men don't understand that truth. So when we come to the issue of speaking about the law, we need to understand a, li- a little bit more precisely what we're uh, speaking about, uh, because Paul kind of uses it in a variety of different fashions. I, I told you uh, several times back when we were talking about the issue of the law, we're not really talking about the special ceremonial laws of Israel, the, the dietary laws and things like that. We're not talking about the civil laws that God gave to the nation of Israel and told them how to function as a society uh, 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 under a theocracy. But when we're talking about the law, we're talking about the sense that the law is that which reveals to us the extent of God's holiness. That's helpful, I think. The law is 
that which reveals to us the extent of God's holiness. One writer puts it like this. He says, the law is simply the revelation of how holy God is. This then sets clearly the divine standard for acceptable behavior. All people who ever lived will be judged by the standard and justly condemned for violating the standard and sent to hell forever. It is that simple. God's law is a manifestation and a revelation of his nature. All mankind are required to be perfect as God is perfect. Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the writer says that's nothing new. Repeatedly through the book of Leviticus, it says, Be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. Over and over again, uh, the Old Testament repeats that command. He says, Peter, in his epistle, 1 Peter, repeats that command. Be holy for I am holy. So anybody who is not as holy as God is cursed because he has violated that holiness which is revealed in God's law. That's helpful. The law, again, is simply that revelation about how holy God is. And the law sets the standard for acceptable behavior of all men before a holy God. And the only behavior that is acceptable is absolute perfection. Now, even before God gave the command or the the law fully disclosed the law of God to Moses in the Ten Commandments, which the Ten Commandments really is a summation of all of the moral laws uh, that God had given, which either have to do with one's relationship to God or one's relationship to mankind. And God condensed them down at that moment uh, at Sinai to ten. You'll remember that the Lord Jesus Christ came and he condensed them down even further. And he said, the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And he said, the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, again, the reason that God gave the law was to, or these laws, was to disclose his moral standard so men might see the sinfulness of their sin. So when God codified the law, again, um, the Ten Commandments, it increased sin. The, the revelation increased sin, meaning that it revealed to us, again, just how far short we fall of God's perfect standard. Right? So if there's any confusion up to the time of Sinai, God says, look, here's ten. You need to keep these ten. Well, we can't keep one, let alone ten. Right? But again, the nail keeps being driven into the, into the coffin, as it were. Uh, we, we need to obey what God says to do and, and, and again, Christ says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And again, the question is, do any of us do that? Can any of us do that? So again, when, when God codified the law, it increased sin. But even before God revealed the law in that codification in the Ten Commandments, men have always had a full revelation of God's law in their heart. For example, Romans chapter 2, verse 14 says, When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and that their thoughts alternately accuse or else defend them. So Paul says, look, even before the law was written, before for those who don't have a written copy of God's law, God has written his law on the heart of every man. Right before he gives before he gave again a full disclosure to to Moses and Israel and the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai. He says, All men are under the law of God. All men are under obligation to obey the law. All men, again, are commanded by the Holy God to be perfect, as the Father in heaven is perfect, to be holy. And again, the truth is, all men fall short of that standard. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says all of sin fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that all men having fall short of the perfection that is in God, stand before God guilty, and they are sinners, violators of God's law. Paul in Romans 2 says there's two kinds of sinners. Again, Romans 2 and 11 says, for where there is no part, or there's no partiality with God, verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will be perish, will perish without the law, and those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Those who have perished without the law, without a written, codified version of God's truth, he says they're going to perish. That would be the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles, just because they don't have the word of God written, wherever they may be, doesn't excuse them of their guilt before a holy God because they are aware of God and his reality. And because they're aware of God and his reality, they have a sense of right and wrong. Paul's already said that back in chapter 1. Paul says, Through the creation, all men have a witness of God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, having been clearly seen, being understood through what was been made, so they are without excuse. Right? The, the bottom line is, is, issue is there's no atheist. Everybody sees the creation, they know that there's a creator, they're accountable to him. 
He goes on and says, even though they knew God, they didn't honor, honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So therefore, all the Gentile world stands guilty, condemned before a holy God because of creation and because of their rejection of the knowledge of him that is available to him or to them through his creation, they're going to be held accountable. They're going to be held accountable to the standard, to the level of knowledge that they have. But again, they know that there's a God. The whole world knows there's a God. And and again, they are without excuse. They don't honor him as God. They don't give thanks. So that's the standard of the Gentile world. And he says, for that Gentile world, he says, all who perish without the law will perish. All who sinned without the law will perish without the law. Uh, the, the word perish, uh, apolumai, means to uh, be destroyed. It doesn't speak of annihilation in, in that sense, but it's destruction, not unto annihilation. It's the term that Jesus used uh, of people who would be thrown into everlasting torment. And then that passage says in uh, Romans two twelve, all those who have sinned under the law, that would be the Jews. That would be the, the ones who had received the codified version of God's law in the Ten Commandments. That would be those who had possession of the, uh, of the Old Testament, those who had a written revelation. All who have sinned under the law, again, the Jews, will be judged by the law. So again, the person who's not had the benefit of having God's law in his possession is going to be judged according to his limited knowledge. But the person who has, ad, has had access to God's law, God's written revelation, is going to be judged by that greater amount of knowledge that he has, that greater amount of revelation that he has. But the bottom line issue, there's only two kinds of people in the world, sinners and sinners. Okay? And all men are going to be held accountable. All men are going to be held accountable, accountable, and the standard is perfection, the perfection of God. And again, all men fall short of that standard. In Romans chapter 2, verse 14, it says that the, the, even though the Gentiles don't have the law, they do just instinctively those things that are uh, of the law. Because God has written the law on every man's heart. And we get that. In every culture around the world, there is innate sense of right and wrong. And God's justice is written, uh, uh, reflected even in secular judicial systems. And every, every society around the world knows that stealing is wrong, that murder is wrong. And various other forms of immorality are considered wrong, therefore made illegal. So again, we don't need the Ten Commandments to tell us, tell us that's a violation of God's law. Uh, we, we, we know that. Every society practices that murder is wrong. And they do that because, again, God has written his law on man's heart. There's a standard, a holy standard that all men know and all men are accountable. And therefore, again, that man is accountable to that law of God. Romans 3 and 9 says, For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Again, as it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. So again, the world... Jewish world, Gentile world, everybody's accountable before God because everybody knows that God's, God exists. And again, God in his kindness, God in his justice has written the law, his law upon every man's heart. And men know that they are violating God's standard. Turn over to the book of Galatians. You want to put a mark there in your Bible? We're going we're gonna to be in Galatians just for a couple of minutes because I want to show you a few things. Uh, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul says, Why then the law? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come, to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not not for one party only, whereas God is only one. The law then, contrary to the promise, is the law then uh, contrary to the promise of God may never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But Scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we are kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now, verse 25, that faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor. 
Now, obviously, there's a lot in that, right? And we, we don't have time to unpack all of them. Um, but, but I just want to give you a few thoughts in that uh, portion of Scripture concerning the law. Again, look at verse 19. Why then the law? Paul says it was added because of transgression. Now, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, came 430 years after Abraham. You see, how in the world do you know that? It's because I read verse 17 of the chapter. It says that. Galatians 3 and 17. The question is, how is Abraham saved? Answer, by faith, right? The doctrine of justification by faith alone is not a Pauline doctrine, it's a biblical doctrine. It goes all the way back to the time of Abraham, it goes back even further than that, but back to the time of Abraham as far as the nation of Israel is concerned. Now, did men know about sin before the law codified came in in the Ten Commandments? And the answer is they did. Did men know that murder was wrong before the time of Abraham? And the answer is, of course, they did. All the way back to Genesis 4, where Cain killed Abel, right? Because God had written his law upon man's heart, and men had a knowledge from the beginning, an innate knowledge, that murder was wrong. Paul again says, why then the law? He says it was added because of uh, transgressions, parabasis is the word, uh, transgressions, stepping over the boundaries. Right, The law came in to give a fuller revelation of the nature of sin, a fuller revelation of transgression against God's standards because men kept stepping over the boundaries. Now, Romans uh, 5 and 12, 20 says the law came in that transgression might increase. So again, the purpose of the law, again, the law added because of transgression, the purpose of the law was to demonstrate to man his total sinfulness, his absolute inability to please God by his own works, and his need for grace. Right? Again, in the context of what Paul is writing, there are a lot of Jews who think they can earn their salvation, they can earn their way to God. And Paul says, the Bible says, that the law was added to show our need of grace, not more effort. A lot of people today that think they can earn their way to heaven by doing this or not doing that thing. The law was added to show the depths of man's transgression against God and again to drive him to a sense of his desperate guilt and his awareness of a need of a deliverer. Right? If you're okay by the standard that you've set for yourself, then you don't see your need of a savior and that's a lot of the world. One commentator writes this, the impossible demands of the law were meant to compel men to recognize their violation of God's standard and to seek his grace through faith in his son. When a man looks at the law, he sees that his living is more simply, uh, more than simply wrong. It is sin, an offense against a holy God before whom no sinful person can stand. The law shows men their violation of the will of God who rules the universe and holds them accountable for their sin. Again, the standard is perfection. And without that standard of perfection, all men are violators of the law of God. He goes on and says, unless men realize that they are living in violation of God's law and therefore stand under his divine judgment, they will see no reason to be saved. Grace is meaningless to a person who feels no inadequacy or need of help. Uh, he sees no purpose in being saved if he does not realize he is lost. He sees no need of forgiveness by God if he does not know that he's offended God. He so sees no seed. Uh, he sees no need to seek God's mercy if he is unaware that he's under God's wrath. And again, that's where a lot of men are. A lot of people are. They're, they're happy with the standard that they've set for themselves. But again, the purpose of the law was really to drive men to despair. Not as a means of righteousness, not a means of making yourself right before God, to drive men to despair so that men would see their sin and they would see their need of salvation found in the mercy and the grace of God. And God's sovereign grace that he offers to those, those who believe. Again, Abraham is justified not by his works, but by his belief. He, Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. So that's the purpose of the law. And again, there's nothing wrong with the law. We're going to see that in verse 12. The law is holy. Uh, um, uh, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Right? But the law just points to what grace only can produce. Right? The law points to what only grace can produce. Verse uh, 19 of Romans chapter 3 says, Now that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, the whole world may become accountable to God. 
because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Again, nobody's earning their way to heaven. Every world religion is working, attempting to work their way to heaven, and no one's getting that way. I said it this morning in John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Right? You aren't getting there on your own effort. You aren't getting, on, getting there through any other mediator because there is no mediator except the man Christ Jesus. So again, the law was given never as a means of salvation. The law was added to give a fuller revelation of sin and for man to see the sinfulness of his sin. The law again was added to make evidence that all men are sinners. All men are violators of God's law. All, all men are unable to earn, to earn salvation by their works. Look up at Galatians 3.10. Uh, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Again, the law was added to make it unmistakably clear to the extent of sin that sinners would say that they have uh, need of God's grace, that, listen, they have absolutely no way of escape if they place themselves under the law. Right? Because if you, 99%, 99.9% isn't working before God, you have to keep the whole law. Always. Have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart? All your mind, all your soul, all your strength, all of your existence, every single second of your existence here on the earth. That's the standard, perfection. So again, verse 19 of chapter 3. Why then the law? He said it was added because of a transgression. And then he says this, until the seed should come. Until the seed should come. Now, obviously, the seed is Christ. You say, how do you know that? Because I read verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, for every, it's cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds as referring to many, but to one, and your seed, that is Christ. Right there, the seed is Christ. So what does the law do, right? Again, that's our, it's critical to have an understanding of that if we're going to understand justification by faith only. What the law does is the law traps the sinner, the law closes the sinner in. The law gives the sinner no escape route, no outlet. The law, again, is God's perfect standard, a declaration of his perfect standard of holiness. And again, God demands that every person who would come into his presence be holy as he is holy. Perfection is the standard. Jew and Gentile alike are falling short of that standard. Jew and Gentile alike are trapped by the law because every man is a sinner under God's curse and condemnation, divine condemnation, divine judgment, because no one keeps the law. And the more the law was defined, again, from all of the things that God said before Mount Sinai, then down to the ten, the more extensive, the more defined, the more extensive the law, the more detailed the law, the more trapped a man is. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the seed should come. So again, what does that mean? Well, the seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, the Lord Jesus Christ sets an even clearer understanding of perfection in God's law. The Lord Jesus Christ sets an even clearer understanding of perfection. John in 1 John 2, 6 says, If you're a believer, if you're one with Christ, you abide with Christ, then you ought to walk in the same manner that Christ walked. The Lord Jesus Christ again says, Matthew 5 and 48 Therefore, you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the question for this hour would be, how are you doing in that pursuit of perfection? Right? How, how are you walking as Christ in the same manner that Christ walked? How is your perfection, your perfect walk going? And the answer is, not very well. Right? Because none of us can do that. No mere man is perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. No mere man is holy as God is holy. And no mere man can walk as Christ walked in the world because Christ walked in this world sinless. And Jesus says in Matthew five seventeen, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill. The standard is perfection. That's what the law demands. And Christ came and he lives an absolutely perfect life, a sinless life. Therefore, he fulfills the law. He fulfills all righteousness. 
He, Jesus Christ, puts divine perfection on display in every circumstance of his life. Why then the law was added because of transgression until the seed should come. So again, the law comes, it's codified, redefined, it increases our accountability, our condemnation before God. It shows us specifically the sinfulness of our sin and our utter inability to do anything to save ourselves. And it shows us the fact that we are under a curse because cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the law. Until the seed should come. Now again, the seed's Christ. He's the one who came to fulfill all righteousness. He's the one who came to fulfill the law. He's the perfect one, the righteous one. He's the one who shows us what holiness looks like. Now it's fine for us when we're doing evangelistic work with people. It's fine for us to use the Ten Commandments as a way to uh, expose a sinner to his sin. We're familiar with this methodology. Have you ever used the Lord's name as a curse word? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lied? Have you ever committed adultery, etc., and so forth? You could take it a little bit further if you wanted. Have you ever been angry with your brother? Have you ever looked with lust upon another person? Might we bring the commandments of God so that a person might be brought under the guilt of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ, when we talk about looking with lust, the Lord Jesus Christ said it's not enough just not to do something on the outside, that it's actually the very thought that makes you guilty of the crime. So it's a violation of God's law, God's holiness, if you do not just do the things on the outside. Again, the Sermon on the Mount, he indicts the Jews for uh, not just the outside, but he indicts them for their inside. We talked about that this morning. It's not just that they were angry, they had murder on their hearts. They're upset with him because he violated their Sabbath, yet they want to murder him. The the hypocrisy of the outside being clean and the inside being foul, corrupt. But using the Ten Commandments, as we have been uh, exposed to do often, is not enough. It's not enough just to ask you, have you ever done, and then fill in the blank. Because when Jesus Christ shows up, there's a more deeper, powerful illustration of the law. It's the seed who appeared, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question that you really need to ask somebody when you're trying to evangelize them is, are you as perfect as Jesus Christ? That's really the issue. He's the issue. Why the law? It was added because of transgression until the seed should come. So again, one writer says this, Christ becomes the new standard. And now the sinner needs to be measured against the perfection of Christ, who is God incarnate. So again, the question is, are you perfect as Christ? And again, uh, the obvious answer with Christ being the new standard is no, right? Nobody, nobody measures up. Christ is the absolute standard of perfection. Christ, the absolute standard of holiness of God on display. Christ, he who knew no sin. Christ who came and fulfilled the law and fulfilled all righteousness. Why then the law was added because of transgression until the seed should come. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Again, Paul says, may it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed have been based on law. Right? Was the law ever given to make men righteous? The answer is no. Can't do that. All the law can do is come and condemn men. All the law can do is come and expose our sinfulness, our lack of righteousness. The fact that we are under condemnation, the fact that we are uh, sinners, and that fact is proved by the fact the wages of sin is death and all men die. Again, it's kind of amazing to me because there's a whole lot of people say they're not sinners, they have not sinned, they've not done anything wrong. Then I say, well, why death? Again, I've told you this before, every time I do a funeral, I always proclaim the gospel. It's a wonderful opportunity. It's an opportunity to face the reality of death and the reality that sin is in the world. And sin is in the world, death is in the world, because sin is in the world. And again, funerals are great opportunities to try to wake the dead, not in the casket, but the dead who are in the audience, to a reality of the truth, because everybody in the room is headed to that same place that the uh, guest of honor is headed to, or the guest of honor has already showed up to Every, I always say something along the lines that every day, or every time I do a funeral, I always say something along the lines of there, there's going to be an appointment that nobody wants to keep, and there's going to be a day when we're the guests of honor at an event like this, right? And nobody wants to be there. But that's reality. The wages of sin is death. The fact that all men die show that all men are infected by this thing called sin. 
right? Righteousness is never, was never, can never be established by the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Verse 22 says, But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which is later to be revealed. Verse 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law has come to be our tutor to lead us to Christ. Right? Again, Christ becomes the new standard by which every sinner is measured against his perfection. Christ is the standard of the law. Again, absolutely perfect he is. And again, the law reveals that we are absolutely sinful. Again, by deeds and by thoughts. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, etc. Again, Romans 3 and 19 says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Right? Everybody is condemned. That's why Jesus Christ came into the world. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And again, the Bible says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, that, but that man cannot be saved until he sees himself as a sinner. So the law comes and the law condemns. The law comes and makes us absolutely guilty under God's divine condemnation and under God's curse, desperately in need of not more effort, but desperately in need of what? Grace. Mercy. Right? And because of our sin, because of our rebellion, we're all hell-bound. We're all headed towards eternal punishment because of our sin. We're all violators of God's standard of holiness. Therefore, mankind's only hope is the person of Jesus Christ. Again, Galatians 3 and 10. As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse... For as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Verse 19, Why the law then? It was added because of transgression until the seed should come. Verse 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. So again, the issue is not so much, have you ever used the Lord's name in vain, or have you ever stolen anything, or lusted, or lied, or committed adultery, etc., and so forth. The real question that needs to be asked the sinner is, are you as perfect as Jesus Christ? Because he's the standard. And again, any attempt to try to put yourself back under the law, try to make yourself right before God by doing or not doing, all that does is place yourself back under a curse. And again, when we realize that God's standard of perfection in his law, that drives us to the perfect one, it drives us to Christ. So that's how the law is the tutor to drive us to Christ, to bring us to Christ. The law is brought to show us that we fall short of God's perfect standard. It's given to us to drive us to the very one who became incarnate, God incarnate. Again, the very standard of perfection. It's given to us to drive us to mercy, to drive us to God's Son, our substitute. As Christ is the one who's sent into the world to save sinners, and Christ is the one who came into the world to relieve those or to rescue those who are under the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So again, all the law can do is produce a knowledge of sin. All the law can do is produce a knowledge of our sinfulness. Again, when measured against the perfect standard of the person of Christ. And again, the law shows us how far short we fall of God's glory. Whether the law was revealed prior to Moses or revealed fully in Moses or exemplified in Christ... Again, it all has the same purpose. It exposes our sin. Everybody's justified who's justified by faith uh, alone, not by, not by their works. So again, are, are you as perfect as Christ? Are you as holy as the Holy One? And again, the answer to that question is, if you're not, then you're cursed. Now again, the Jews at the time that Paul is writing the book of Romans don't understand this. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Right? They were, they were ignorant of God's righteousness, but they also had no understanding of their own unrighteousness. Again, like men today. Men do not understand how holy God is, and they don't understand how sinful they are. Therefore, they don't see their need of a Savior. One writer says this, They thought they were more holy and righteous than they were, and therefore fully believed that any deficit in their own merit could be met by their own good works, measured by their own standard of righteousness. Israel was willing 
willingly and excusably ignorant of God's righteousness because she sought to establish her own righteousness and refused to subject herself to the righteousness of God. I said this morning, those people who come to an understanding of the truth, those people who are saved have to do what? Have to humble themselves. They have to humble themselves under the word of God, the word of Christ, and they have to listen to what God has to say because the person of the Lord Jesus Christ not only is the way of salvation, but he comes speaking the words of God to show the way of salvation. Again, every world system, every world religion, it thinks wrongly, falsely, that they're working their way to heaven, which they can never do. All the law does is condemn. The standard is perfection. The Jews didn't understand that. Not knowing about God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own, they didn't subject themselves to the righteousness of God because they wouldn't subject themselves to the word of God. They made their own religious system, right? Verse 4 of that chapter, Romans 10 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone believes. Want to take yourself away from under the curse, under condemnation? Answer, flee to Christ. Christ is the end of the law. He's the one who fulfilled the law. Perfect righteousness, perfect holiness. So again, the law demands absolute perfection. And the law, listen, brings absolute damnation to those who violate God's holiness once. The law demands absolute perfection and brings absolute damnation to those who violate God's standard of holiness just one time. You go back and you look at the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. You go back and look at the, the, the law of Moses that many of the Jews in Paul's day in the context of writing this book were placing themselves under who wrongly believed that they could earn their right standing before God by their works <clears throat> rather than faith in God. You'll see in all of those Ten Commandments, there's no way of recovering. You violate God's law just one time, and you're eternally condemned. Again, that's what the sinner then, that's what the sinner now doesn't understand. The punishment for violation of God's holiness is eternally severe. It's eternal torment. As again, God demands absolute perfection. The command is, be holy as I am holy. And again, God never grades on a curve, as it were. Kind of, sort of, good enough, or close enough, doesn't work in God's economy. Again, Galatians 3 and 10, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So the law demands perfection. And the law demands absolute perfection. And the law demands absolute damnation, again, for anyone who violates God's law, again, even one time. Someone has said this. He said, sinners who violate the law of God will find it to be permanently fatal. That's a great statement. Sinners who violate the law of God will find it to be permanently fatal. Right? Because apart from the righteous one, there's no hope. There's nothing you can do to to redeem yourself. The law is relentlessly demanding. The law never gives up. The law never gives a place for rest. And in the law, there's no strength to help us obey it. Again, the law broken never offers restitution, no path of recovery, no repentance. You can't just say you're sorry and God says, hey, well, let bygones be bygones. God's justice won't allow that. The law won't allow that. There's no prescription of mercy anywhere in the law, no forgiveness. Again, Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith because, again, Christ is our only hope. As the law of God revealed, uh, again, unfolded from the very beginning, points us to that fact of sin, and the reality of sin and the reality of death proves, again, the existence of sin in the world. Go all the way back to the time of uh, Abraham, or uh, all the way back to the time of uh, uh, Adam, back to the time of Cain and Abel. Even then, death was required for any violation of God's law. In those early days in the book of Genesis, even before Cain and Abel came along, just with Adam and Eve, God in his kindness started to reveal uh, the sacrificial system that was needed. Right? When the man and the woman sinned and they hid themselves and they tried to cover themselves, God says, you can't do that. I don't provide you clothing. Right? He provides uh, the clothing uh, of a slain sacrifice to cover their sin, as it were. Death is necessary to take care of sin. Uh, a life has to be given to take care of the issue of sin. But the blood of bulls and goats could never fully take away man's sin. It couldn't deal with the issue of man's sin. But from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3 forward, it was always a picture. It was a picture of man's need of a substitute. 
And of course, we know the substitute being the perfect man, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who alone takes away the sin of the world. Again, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Because again, Christ is the standard of perfection. Christ, our substitute, the one God sent into the world to bear a curse. Christ, who God sent into the world to take us out from the curse and the condemnation of the law. God, who sent Christ to reconcile us to the law, to reconcile us to the Father. He becomes the perfect sacrifice. He becomes the final sacrifice for sin. Again, we can't earn perfection. We can't live perfection. We can't attain perfection by anything we do. We need a perfect substitute who can who has perfectly fulfilled the law of God and we need a perfect righteousness that comes from a perfect savior who gives us who takes our sin and gives us his perfect righteousness that's why the writer of the book of Hebrews says Hebrews 10 and 1 for the law since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices year after year by which they offer continually make perfect those who draw near Verse four of that chapter says, "For it is impossible for the bull, the blood of bulls and goats, to take away the sin, take away sins. Therefore, when he comes, verse five, when he comes, the Savior comes into the world. He says, sacrifice and offering that was not desired, but a body has prepared for me, and a whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin that was, takes no pleasure.' Verse ten. Then he said, "Behold, I have come to do your will." He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Verse ten. By this will we have. Uh, been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But he, Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, for by one offering he perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Again, Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, all the sacrifices in the temple, all the sacrifices of the lambs, the bulls and goats, or all the Old Testament was just a picture of the perfect one who is coming. We need a substitute. The the law condemns us as utterly guilty, and we need somebody to stand in our place. Now, it's amazing, isn't it, that you can live under that system and so screwed up. That you can live for all those years thinking that you're understanding of the truth of God and then miss the point completely, but that's what the Jews did. It's not just the Jews, it's a lot of people. Again, Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law became... uh, has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. That's tremendous. That's exactly what Paul's been saying in Romans, right? And once you come to faith in Christ, you're no longer under the law. You're no longer under God's condemnation. Christ is the standard. Christ is righteousness. Christ is the essence of holiness. Christ, the one who is our judge is also our merciful high priest. He's also our merciful uh, uh, redeemer. He's the perfect sacrifice, the perfect fulfillment of the law. He's the one, again, becomes our sin bearer. He takes our curse for us. And again, he comes and he offers himself for us. He makes perfect for all time those who are sanctified, who by faith trust in him and his one-time atoning work upon Calvary's cross. You know what? We need Jesus Christ. Amen? If you don't remember anything else here tonight, if I ask you when we leave here, uh, what did you learn tonight? Your answer is going to be, we all need Jesus Christ. Because that's the answer. That's why we preach the law. We need to preach the law. We need to expose sinners to the law so they are exposed to their sinfulness so that they would see their need for Christ. Because while it is true that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, no one can be saved unless they see themselves as a sinner. No one can be saved by the shed blood of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ unless they see their desperate condition before a holy God. So again, the purpose of the law when we're using it evangelistically is not to try to attract people to Jesus because he loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. It's not because uh, he wants to be their friend. We proclaim the law of God so that people might fear God. So, so that people might see they fall short of God's perfection. There really needs to be an utter terror in a man's life before he will turn himself over to the Savior and pursue the Savior. Now, with not going into a tremendous amount of detail, I don't know about you, but that's the way it was for me. When the Lord started really working in my life, I don't speak hyperbole, 
but I'm literally on my face in my house going, man, I'm in a whole lot of trouble. Right? I, I can't justify myself by being religious. I, I need a Savior. And that's what the law does. The law has to get you to a point where you, you, you are in fear of this holy God whom you're going to stand before unless you have a, somebody who has interceded for you, a mediator, an intercessor. That's the person of the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we proclaim the law of God so the men would come under conviction. They'd be, come to a place where they fear God. They'd understand how far they fall short of God's standard of perfection. And again, without that perfection, God's going to punish them forever. The same God, however, will forgive their sin and forgive them if they will turn to his son, the embodiment of the law, perfection, literally personified, perfection in the flesh. That help a little, Galatians 3? Now, I know that's a long introduction, but that's all that was. That was just an introduction to Romans chapter 7. So we just need to think more clearly about the law and the purpose of the law. Now go quickly back to... to to uh, Romans chapter 7 because that's what you came here for. And again, we're looking at the law and we're looking at the role and the function of the law in the life of the believer. But also at the same time, we're really looking at the devastating effect of sin. That's really what he's talking about. The devastating effect of sin. And as I told you, apart from God himself, sin is the greatest power in the universe. And I think that's how we have to think of sin. Sin is the greatest power in the universe. And it really is a, a positive power, if you will, if I can say it that way. Because it's not just the absence of obedience. Sin is not just a negative per se. Excuse me, because a negative can't produce a result. Nothing can't produce something. A void of something can't produce the fruit of death. And that's what sin produces. Sin is a positive force. Sin is so powerful that it reigns, it rules, it dominates, it enslaves every man and woman who do not know Christ. Sin is so powerful, Paul says, that sin even uses the law of God, which is perfect, holy, and good, that sin even uses the commandment of God to stimulate or to arouse, to awaken our sinful passions that we might desire to do all manner of evil. That's how powerful sin is. Sin arouses rebellion against God. And sin actually stimulates our hatred for God. So again, sin is so powerful, we absolutely have no hope of defeating sin apart from Christ. You can't tell a sinner, stop sinning. You can't do 12 steps to stop sinning. You can't do 24 steps to stop sinning. You can't do 224 sins to stop sinning because you can't stop sinning apart from Christ. Dead people can't do that. People need Christ. Now, in the first six verses of chapter 7, Paul has been stating that fact. He's stating the fact that the Christian in Christ now has died to the, died to the law. We stand in a completely new relationship to the law. We have a, a new relationship to God. We're no longer under the penalty of the law. We're no longer under God's condemnation. We've been united with the person of Christ, married is the analogy. We don't stand under condemnation. We stand in grace. Again, Paul's been showing that no man's justified by the law, no man can be sanctified by the law. Actually, what the law does is the very opposite of what many people think it does. Rather than stopping men from sinning, it actually arouses sin more in men. So if the law arouses man's sinful passions, the question is, is the law sinful? And again, Paul takes up the argument to defend the law and says, look, the law's not responsible for man's sin, but man is. So verse 7, he takes up the vindication of God's holy, just good law. What shall we say then is the law sin may never be? Absolutely not. Again, the very thought is blasphemous. In no way is God's law anything but perfect. In fact, he goes on and says, the law of God is that what helped him, the apostle, to see the essence of sin. On the contrary, he says, I would not have come to known sin, uh, to know sin except through the law, for I have not come to know about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. So again, like other sinners, Paul, when he was Saul, was concerned about the externals, right? Don't do this, don't do that. Again, actions. The law comes in the form of the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment shows him the truth about sin that is more than just actions. It's actually desire, desires of the heart. It's not a, enough to just not do something or keep away from doing an activity. The Bible says our guilt is present as lawbreakers 
just by the desire to do that which is evil. So again, the 10th commandment awakens Saul at the time to that truth and exposed to him the internal element of sin that he never saw before. He was just about the outside of the cup, right? He was keeping the outside clean. And like any self-righteous Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus could have said, look, I'm fine before God. He could have, like any other self-righteous Pharisee, prayed a prayer very much along the lines of, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. I do all these things for you. I, I keep the law, and I'm a pretty good guy, pretty perfect, pretty blameless. You're pretty, you're pretty blessed to have me as one of your followers, right? That's what he thought. But then he says, but it was through the law that came, he came to know sin. He said, look, I would not have known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. Is the law sin? No. I would not have known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. He says, look, it's really the law that opened my eyes to the true nature and character of sin, the internal nature of sin. Again, I thought I was fine by the externals of the law, by keeping the externals. But when I really understood the law, I saw that sin was in my heart. Sin was in my mind. Sin, <clears throat> excuse me, exposed me as a covetous man, a man who had a strong desire to possess those things, to own those things that I had no right to. I lusted after that which was not mine, and all kinds of evil desires came into my being as I was exposed as a sinner. That's what Paul's saying. Again, as the law sin may never be, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. He says, the, the law is not the issue. You know what the issue is? It's me. It's sin in me. That's the issue. Now again, there's a whole lot of people who don't understand that. There's a whole lot of people who think they're okay on the outside. Not as bad as that fellow over there, and I'm not as bad as that person over there. They compare themselves to a standard that's not the standard before God. And they say, well, I don't do these things and I don't do these other things. So I'm really not that bad. But when men don't see is they don't see the corruption on the inside as God sees because God doesn't look on the outside. God looks at the, the heart. God sees the corruption on the inside, the wretchedness on the inside. And that's what sin does. Sin corrupts us to the very core of our beings. So the law reveals sin not only that, but the law aggravates or arouses sin, verse 8. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. So again, here's the answer to why the law had the effect of stirring up or arousing sin in me. Paul says, good, again, the issue is not the law, the issue is sin. Sin taking opportunity through the commandment. Sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. And again, the word opportunity means a place from which to attack is to be made, a base of operations, if you will. Paul says, look, sin is so powerful in my life, sin is so powerful in, in all of our lives that it even took the commandment of God and used that commandment as a place from which to launch an attack to carry out its evil. Sin produced in me coveting of every kind, or it produced in me all manner of evil desire. So again, the law is not the issue, sin is the issue. Again, sin is so strong, Paul says, that it actually takes that which is holy, just, and good, and it stimulated my corrupt passions, my evil passions. It aroused evil thoughts that lay there dormant in my mind until I became a mass of corruption, and I bear fruit for uh, and the members of my body for death. That's what, the, that's what the law did, or that's what sin did with the law. Again, the law says, Thou shalt not covet, and then sin takes over and launches an attack and causes all manner of coveting, all manner of lusting. So again, I said it earlier, but next to God himself, sin is the most powerful entity in the universe. Sin reigns, sin dominates, sin rules over and enslaves every man who's not united to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that it might produce all manner of evil desire. Sin is so powerful that men alone can't stand against sin. No man, no man by his own effort can ever escape the, the, the grasp of sin, the dominion of sin. I mean, just think about back to the Garden of Eden. Not a whole lot of rules there. A whole lot of freedom. A whole lot of stuff that God said you can have anything you want except thou shalt not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did the man and the woman do? That's the only commandment against everything I give you freely 
and they ran as fast as they could to that very tree, that's what they were drawn to. To partake of that which did not belong to them. Why is that? Not the sermon for tonight. But the serpent came and said, Indeed has God said. Back to my sermon this morning. If you don't humble yourself under the word of God, you're never going to know the truth. Indeed has God said, let me tell you this. Another sermon for another night. God knows how to speak. He knows how to speak clearly. And words mean something. They should never have entered into that conversation, but they did. And here we are as a result of that. God said, thou shalt not eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And that's the tree they ran to. And again, it's been that way with fallen man ever since then. The law of God says, thou shalt not. And man in his rebellion is aroused by sin to say, I'm going to do the very thing that God has forbidden me to do. That's just reality. Don't pick the flowers. (laughs) I'm picking dozens of them. Right? Don't step on the grass. I'm stomping on it. Right? The law places us under a curse. Right? Because sin uses the law. Sin is so powerful. The law places us under a curse, and sin is so powerful, we've got to find a way to get out from underneath the curse. We've got to find a way to get out from under the condemnation, but we can't do it ourselves. The only way that we can do it is by... Do you know the answer? You should say the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always the answer. The only way we can do it is by the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? It's only when we see our sin. It's only when we see our bankruptcy. It's only when we see our own vileness, our own wretchedness. That's the only time we see our desperate need of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and we flee to mercy. Right? Sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law sin is dead. What does that mean? Now he's not saying that sin had no existence before the law because we know that's not true. He's saying that sin is dead in the sense that it didn't overwhelm a person until the law came. Sin was there, it's somewhat dormant, then the law comes, the law reveals sin, arouses sin, aggravates sin, and then you begin to see the real terror that sin has on your life. Again, sin is so terrible that it consumes the unrepentant person. The sin is so terrible, it will consume the unrepentant person in hell forever. And again, people can't see the wretchedness of their own sin until they see the law, until the law comes and convicts them the fact that they are a sinner in desperate need of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the question is, are you perfect? Are you perfect as Christ? Because Christ is the standard. And again, the unregenerate man has no idea of how bad they are until they meet the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The unregenerate man is trying to do better. How much better? Better. Right? They're trying to live better. They're trying to do better. Saul of Tarsus is trying to be religious until he meets Christ. Until his heart was revealed through the law and in the presence of the law personified, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he's crushed, literally, to the ground. Did I say that earlier? I think so. Verse 9. The law not only reveals sin, arouses and aggravates sin, but the law devastates and destroys the sinner. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. So verse 9 is kind of a before and after picture, if you want, of uh, what was true of Paul when the commandment came. So again, Paul's using himself as an example, his own life as an example, before he became to Christ, before he came to Christ, before he came to Christ, he was a highly trained, self-serving, self-righteous, zealot, religious Pharisee, considered himself blameless before God. He saw himself as one who kept the letter of the law. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. And again, I'm doing my own thing, living my own life. I'm fine in my own eyes. I'm living my self-righteous life. But then conviction comes. I was exposed to the law, exposed to Christ. When the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Now, when Paul was living apart from the law, the law was not doing the convicting, condemning work in him. Again, he was living as if there was no law. When I was living apart or alive apart from the law. But then he says, when the commandment came... When the commandment came, he means when the commandment came to him. Uh, when the truth was fully illuminated in his heart, and his mind, his spirit. When his eyes were open to the truth. Then the law began to convict him. He began to see himself as a sinner. Uh, a real sinner. A, a man who is full of lust. A man who is 
full of all kinds of evil desires. When the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. So again, Paul in essence is saying, before the law began to do its convicting work, sin was lying dormant in my life. I was dull to it. I thought I was uh, living my life. I was dead, living my life, not understanding the power, dominion of sin that it had over me. I didn't understand sin's deluding power. I, I lived my life the best I could in my own strength, by my own power, my own righteousness, apart from the law. And again, apart from the law, I was blameless. I was full of self-confidence, uh, congratulating myself for what a good job I was doing before uh, a God. Again, I'm not like other people, swindlers and unjust, adulterers, right? I fast twice a week, I pay tithes, etc., and so forth. But he says, uh-oh. When the commandment came, Sin became alive and I died. So again, the question is, when exactly did the commandment come to Saul of Tarsus? And the answer to that is when he met Jesus Christ. When he met Jesus Christ, when he saw, when he met absolute perfection, when he met the holiness, uh, the holy one, he met the righteous one. Then he saw the law in its proper perspective when he saw the law in relationship to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when he saw that the law condemned him and judged him guilty. That's what the, when he saw that the law condemned him and judged him to eternal judgment. And that nothing but the substitutionary death of the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ, could ever make him right or ever reconcile him before God. Right? When he met Jesus Christ and understood that the righteous one would die in his place, then he stopped trusting himself. He stopped boasting in his own effort and started boasting in the person and in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? How bad is sin? If everything I've told you tonight doesn't tell you how bad sin is, sin is so bad that it took the death of the righteous, perfect, holy God to stand as our substitute to reconcile us to the perfect, holy Father. That's how bad sin is. And that's why every rejection of mercy, of God's offer of mercy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is such an affront to him because he sacrificed his son to provide forgiveness of sin through the substitutionary sacrifice, the only way for sin ever to be atoned for. And people who reject mercy will get justice. The whole world's crying for justice. How stupid is this world who sits deceived under the lies of the evil one? I absolutely guarantee you there's nobody on the planet who wants justice. We all want mercy. Because justice is going to condemn you to eternal condemnation that you rightly have earned. It's only God's mercy through the substitute, the person of the Lord Jesus, that can provide us any kind of hope. Paul says, look, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, he says, sin became alive and I died. Again, when he met Jesus Christ, everything changed. The convicting, condemning power of the law of God awakened him to the reality of his hopelessness, his helplessness, his utter destitution of his life before a holy God. Again, once he thought he was fine before God, apart from the law, sin was dead. I once was alive apart from the law. When the commandment came, it... Sin became alive and I died. Again, for the first time, he realizes that he's a sinner. For the first time, he realizes he's not in a good position. He's spiritually dead. He's devastated. He's ruined before this God of perfection. And again, literally, he sees the holiness of God. He sees the beauty of Christ, and he's literally crushed to the dust. Because he comes to a realization and understanding that he's vile, he's foul, he's wretched before this holy God. He knew that he, too, was a son of rebellion. He knew that he too was a child of wrath. He knew that he was living in the lust of his flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. He was living in absolute ignorance apart from the law. He had no discernment, no understanding of sin. He had no understanding of the power and dominion of sin in his own life. He didn't understand his innate internal corruption. When the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. So again, Paul realizes that everything that he's done in his past, I think Bruce mentioned this morning, right? Everything became to him... All of his religious achievement, he says, actually became to me as dung. Right? It's Philippians chapter 3. Well, I got a good resume. Let me tell you my resume. My, my resume, right? Circumcised on the eighth day, the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, for, as for the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is found in the law, blameless. Philippians 3 and 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted lost. 
for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. When I looked at my religious resume and I saw the perfection of the perfect one, I said, not only am I in a whole lot of trouble, but all that stuff I'm chucking because it's nothing but dung, rubbish, the word is scubalon, and that's exactly what it means. I could give you a very literal rendering of the word, but I won't do that just for propriety, uh, but that's exactly what it means. It's the dregs. It's the most worthless of all worthless things. It's detestable. Because he said, I, I come to a realization that nothing's more valuable than the person of Jesus Christ. Did, did we do a, a, a VBS on what's the most valuable thing in the world? Something to do with the rock of ages and gold and pursuing... The most valuable thing in the entire universe is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law when the commandment came... Sin became alive and I died. That's Saul of Tarsus, right? Saul of Tarsus, the self-righteous Pharisee, dies. He now becomes the Apostle Paul. He's got to get some training, I understand that. But he becomes the Apostle Paul, and now he's ready to say with that penitent tax gatherer, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Got to see yourself as a sinner if you're ever going to see Jesus Christ as a Savior. The old me died. Done with. Over. That's why he says in Galatians 2 and 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I live, now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Same thing has to happen with us. Same thing will happen with us once you repent and place your faith in the Savior. When the commandment comes to us, when the commandment comes to us, we're set free from the law. Again, we have to see our only hope being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to reject all forms of self-justification, self-righteousness. We have to turn to that righteousness that, again, is an alien righteousness, a righteousness that's outside of ourselves, a righteousness that is found in the righteous one, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's all about Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Right? That's what the law is meant to do. The law is meant to drive us to Christ, to show us our utter hopelessness, our helplessness, to drive us to the Savior. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Amen? Now, you might be surprised, you might not be surprised, but I had in my hand notes to go on to verse 10, but I thought by this time you're probably all going to be a little bit tired, so I thought, you know what, it's a good place to stop. We didn't get very far, but we got a little bit better look, I think, on on the issue of the sin, right? The, the problem's not the law, it's sin. Sin deceives and it destroys. It, it exercises a domineering, damning power over the natural man. It enslaves men to do all manner of evil. And again, it's that deceiving power of sin that causes so many people to be outside the kingdom of God and outside the realm of salvation because they don't see their need of a Savior. And again, the issue is not so much have you done these things or not done these things. The issue is, are you perfect as Christ? Because all have sinned, all fall short of the perfection of God's holiness. And again, Jesus Christ, our only hope. Amen. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for the fact that you have given Jesus Christ to us. And we're thankful for the fact that Jesus Christ has come. He's come into the world to save sinners. And we're the greatest of all sinners. And we need the greatest of all Savior, that being the person of Christ. And we're so thankful that our Savior is greater than our sin. And that he reconciles us to you by his work not by our effort. Help us to understand these truths and may we grow in our knowledge of them and grow in our love for you and for him. We thank you for a great day of worship. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.